it's almost as if our identity changes after grief, especially after suicide loss. There's just this kind of sense of who am I now? Like I said, who am I if my brother couldn't be here anymore? Who am I? And then you have to start piecing that back together again. And I think my research, my own therapy has been a part of that rebuilding my identity, rebuilding my belief system. Hello and welcome to Grief, Gratitude and the Grey in Between podcast. This podcast is about exploring the grief that occurs at different times in our lives in which we have had major changes and transitions that literally shake us to the core and make us experience grief. I created this podcast for people to feel a little less hopeless and alone in their own grief process as they hear the stories of others who have had similar journeys. I'm Kendra Rinaldi, your host. Now, let's dive right in to today's episode. We have with us today, we have Sue Egan all the way from the UK. I'll find out the what part of the UK in just a minute when you share your star, your story. Uh, Sue is also a podcast host, recently launched a podcast called The Healing Narratives of Suicide, and she is a suicide grief psychotherapist and is now working towards her doctorate in psychology. Uh, I'm excited to have you on the podcast. Sue, welcome. Hi, thank you so much. Yeah, it's great to be here amongst fellow grief podcasters. And about amongst fellow grievers too. It's like not only are you a podcaster, but you're also a griever, as as I am as well. And so uh, we can we can relate to people's stories in some way. Not understand, but relate. Right? That do you find that? Totally, totally. There's a real sense of union. I think solidarity. Whenever I meet anybody who's been on a similar journey, it's such a complicated one. And often you feel so alone in it and so isolated and just have the, the understanding that someone else has been in those shoes and is still standing. <laughs> that's what it's all about for me. And that's where I am with my journey now, trying to help other people understand that. Oh, wow. Yeah, you're, you're right. It just, it's a it, real... You, it, makes you, it makes you feel less alone. Yes, exactly. You're just, it feels a privilege. It feels part of my healing to do my podcast and to keep speaking to people because if I lock it away, if, you know, if, which I, I did initially, I locked it away and it felt, you know, just to survive, just to get through every single day with being a mum and doing my studies, I had to just not pretend it didn't happen, but just get my head down and carry on. And I think now that I talk to other people, I've done my research, um, it's not been easy and I've had headaches, migraines, you know, I've had the experience of going there, going back to the event, talking through it, talking through it, talking through it. And I come out the other side of those headaches a little bit more relieved. Of course, it never disappears. But each time I do that, at the end of the process, I feel a little bit lighter and more. That piece isn't the right word either. I find it really difficult to find the words because it's such a huge thing to happen. So it's there's a sense of peace there, more peace than I've ever had each time I do it. That's all the only way I can describe it. It gets lighter and lighter each time. And it's never going to disappear. But every time I speak to somebody, I learn 
I'm so humbled by it, by hearing their stories. Yeah, you learn, you learn something from somebody else and you're like, oh, wow, I guess I'm not the only one that gets headaches from this process or I'm not the only one that feels, you know, certain ways uh, in my grief journey. Others have assimilated their grief in the same way. So let's, let's kind of rewind since um, we haven't heard a little bit more about you. So where in the UK do you live? And you mentioned you're a mom. So let's talk about that. And then we'll talk about your brother and then the where you are now. Great. Yeah, I'm so I've got four children. I've got four teenagers now. I'm a single mum. Been a single mum now for six years, and I think that in itself is a job in itself. Absolutely, one hundred percent. And keeping them emotionally happy as teenagers today, I find one of the biggest challenges in the society we live in. You know, with social media and things, keeping them emotionally well, especially with lockdown and all the things we've been going through. So yeah that's that's i feel that's me really as a mum and i think often we say what more do i need to be but sometimes just to say i'm a mum is really important and that's my main kind of thing especially as a single mum i've been sort of concentrating on for a really long time and as they're getting older now my daughter's 19 your role right now i have four children in five years so yeah so it's 14 15 six so tell us so 19 is your oldest yeah 1917 they keep changing age so I have to remember 1917 15 and then 14 <laughs> I have to work it out <laughs> is it like is he 16 yet or not is he just had his oh he's just had his 16th birthday okay 1917 16 14 got it <laughs> um yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I had so, I had four and five years. So life you, you, has you, never been quiet. <laughs> oh wow! So this was six years ago that you became a single mom. So was that in your? Was it a divorce due to divorce separation? When you became a single mom? Yes. Yeah. No. Yeah. Separation. Yeah. 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 Still married, but how, separated. How yeah, was even? Yeah separated so even in that aspect of even just that and we'll talk of course about the death of your brother but in that aspect of the end of that relationship did you experience grief in that moment as well six years ago oh gosh I think when you marry somebody and you believe it's going to be forever there's certainly a grief sense of your belief system kind of saying but I've got to let go of that thing I believed. I've got to let go of that belief I had that this would be forever. And, you know, when you invest in a relationship for so long and you try 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 for years and years and years, there's a real letting go at that stage. It, it, I, I've lost my mum as well. My mum died just before I separated, actually. And I think my mum dying um, helped me to finally kind of put myself first and say, do I really want to be here? So actually that was kind of mixed up with my mum's grief quite a lot. And what I learned from her death mm-hmm. was huge, massive, what I learned from my mum's death. And she died from a, a natural causes, Pick's disease. And I nursed her, you know. I had never heard of that. Pick's, you said? Pick's disease? Yeah, Pick's disease. It's not very well known. It's usually it's not known until they've passed away, unfortunately, because it's not very easy to be picked up. So it's like an early onset dementia, basically, it presents as that. 
So she started showing signs of dementia at 58, 59 years old, which is very early. And she was given other, loads of different diagnoses in terms of frontal temporal dementia, Alzheimer's. She got every disease that um, diagnosis under the sun to try and work out what was wrong. And it wasn't until she passed away that they went, ah, now we know it's pics because of the way she died. It's like, okay, <laughs> but it's a fatal disease. You know, there's nothing anybody could have done, which is very different to suicide. How long suicide did you loss. care for her? Um, and obviously that's all implicated as well, probably. Oh, a oh, year. Wait, I wait, came back wait. home she, a year before the, she died. Your brother, um, oh, to take care of her. I'm sorry. And by chance, sorry, there's delay a little bit in our sound. I think partly our our connection. I was just telling Sue before we started recording here I'm, that there's a big storm here in Texas as we're recording, and she has an incoming storm there in the UK. So it's like we're we're both kind of in the middle of that. So if I interrupt you, Sue, or if I'm like waiting to like then talk to you, is because there's a little bit of a delay. So my my apologies, and it may not show once I edit, but it's showing now as I'm like pausing to yeah. to kind of talk to you. So my apologies there yeah. with the no, uh, with the delay. No, so you were saying. You were saying then your, but your your brother passed away was after your mom passing, so correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should probably be a bit clearer with that. Yeah, six years ago my mom passed away, and I separated about a month after that, two months maybe after that, and then my brother passed two years after that, which was four years ago. So in the last six years, I've gone from a family of six, you know, my mum, my dad, four siblings, me and my three siblings. Um, four children, I should say, me and three siblings. We, we've gone from six to four in six years, which is crazy because I'm only 44 years old. I'm not that old <laughs> to lose two people that quickly. Oh. And I think to st I'm the youngest of all that. So for me to look up and see that the family go from four to six, we've always been a big family of six. So to suddenly go to four within that space of time, it just, you learn so much from it about life, death, what's important what's not and it's made me who I am today for sure absolutely now let's talk then your your so your mom died of Pick's disease and then your brother um two years later then um with the circumstances around his death he died by suicide correct correct yes yeah yeah um uh, absolute shock he was an awesome man, you know, he was uh, everybody's uh, knight in shining armor, you know, he would do anything for anybody, he would, he gave me his car, because I didn't have one, you know, just out of the generosity of his heart, he worked hard, he had businesses, he had a family, he had children, and, you know, he had the, <laughs> if anyone looks at my Instagram page, you know, there's a picture of him there with his muscles, because on the face of it, he he came fifth in a bodybuilder competition, you know, six months before. So he looked amazing. And everyone thought a successful businessman. And that's what you saw on the cover of Andrew. But underneath that, who knows? You know, so the shock for me was just immense the day I found out and immense in terms of picking up the pieces afterwards to work out what what just happened there because there, there was no pre-warning that there was with my mum you know I had the pre-warning the anticipated grief with my mum where I said goodbye you know I was able to come to terms with her death before she left so there was yeah 
So with your brother, there was no signs of depression or anything like that, that neither you or his family, his, you know, his kids and, and uh, companion like had noticed at all. I mean, he, we were, we were very close me and my brother. And he did say to me at the sort of earlier year before um, that he wasn't happy, that um, things weren't quite right. He, we talked a lot and he got therapy. He went to, I know, cranial psychotherapist, a normal therapist. He went to the doctors. He got lots of support. And I, and when I then spoke to him sort of every so often, he was getting better. He was improving. And so in my eyes, yeah, he was getting better. He was improving. And he was my brother. He was the, um, he looked after me when I was young. He was, my dad was quite ill when I was young. So my mum would go off to hospital to look after my dad. And my brother, the eldest brother of the family would step up and cook us dinner and bring us home from school, do that whole thing. And I always looked up, I always looked up to him, my big brother, you know? And so to me, he was the strongest man in the world. And I always asked for advice, his advice. And suddenly you can't do that anymore. And suddenly you're picking up the pieces from the idea that he was the strongest person I knew. And he was part of my belief system. He's, he's, he's a sibling. He's part of my attachment, which I talk a lot about in terms of psychology. I attached to him as a child. He was part of who I am as a brother. So when he had to do what he did, I do believe from everything I've sort of come to terms with since that he was in a place where he couldn't live anymore. And I don't know the exact reasons for that. I'm not, I'm not in his head. I'll never be able to go back into his head, but I have to come to some, some peace with knowing that he couldn't be here anymore. And him not being any, any here anymore for me at the time was just a, if he can't be here, how can I be here? It didn't make sense to me because he was such mm. a, a big, strong guy, you know, in my eyes. Mm. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, Sue. Thank you. And I I can only imagine, and actually I've, I've experienced the dynamics of a family changing uh, when somebody dies. Uh, just mine was a little bit more spread out. My uh, my sister died of a car accident and then my, my mom died of cancer, but with 20 years difference there. So the dynamics, like you mentioned, of going from that family of six, which we were also six, to going to a family of four, um, that I can I can relate to. So how did that shift? And you mentioned you you guys didn't live in the same you didn't live in the same city as a family. Do you have some of your siblings that live in your same city or your your because you said you would go off into your mom. So your mom and your dad live a little farther from you. How is that? Um, how are you all spread out? Yeah. Yeah, we're all spread out in the southwest of England and hours, there's like an hour between all of us separately. And I actually lived on the Isle of Wight, which is a little island off the, off the south coast of the UK. And I came back towards the southwest when I found out my mum was ill to, to support her and support my dad. And I, I'm so, I'm so pleased I did that because looking back, that gave me such a, a place of being able to say goodbye um, and, and look after her really because she'd looked after me all, all her life and it was my turn to look after her and for me that was so healing to be able to do that with her spend those moments with her in that last year I'm so pleased I moved back so we're all yeah in the southwest and my brother was kind of an hour and a half away from me so he was probably the furthest um, so we couldn't just pop down the road and have a cup of tea <laughs> no we'd have to make the effort to go and see each other 
And I think that always takes effort when your family lives an hour or so away. It always takes that extra effort. And, and once it's, it's kind of too late, you always you always look back and think, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. You know, I wish I'd maybe popped over more or whatever. But we can't, I can't put myself through that over and over again. Because otherwise it's just this vicious thought going through your head. And as a psychologist, you know, I understand that how how damaging that can be to that self-talk. That self-talk is so powerful, basically. Yes, yes, it is. Now let let's let me ask you something. Were you already practicing psychology at that moment? I know you I mean I mean it's been four years, or did you become a psychologist? Have have you been working towards your psychology uh degree now? Like what was your what was your studies before or were you studying psychology? Just curious. Yeah. So 15 years ago, I started my psychology degree when my children were young and I, I was running a business at the time and I just wanted to do something towards my future that I really believed in. Um, so I didn't have any qualifications coming out of school. So I was 30 years old, you know, nearly 30. And I said, right, I'm going to do a psychology degree. I did it all online in eight years with my kids young, looking after them. And then I thought, what do I do with this now? I've got a psychology degree. I want to help people. So then I did a counselling degree, which took four years, on top of all the certificates you've got to do and things to become a counsellor. Wow. And I also did some teaching assistant jobs and things around like like that around then. And then, and then after that, I thought, I'm, I'm not done yet. I don't feel done with my studies. So I then went on to the counselling psychology doctorate which is a four year course, which I'm at my final, my final year. I've finally done my last hand in of my essays this week. I'm like, oh, it's amazing. I've done all my placement. I've done 450 hours of, of therapy. <laughs> I've done 450 hours of free therapy in the NHS to get my award. You know, you have to do so much work, so many essays, and I'm doing my research into suicide grief, which is part of my story and my healing most definitely. And that, so yeah, my brother died four years ago. I started the doctorate four years ago, so it felt natural. I did my research on suicide grief and what it's like for those left behind, like me. <laughs> wow. So would you say that that has been your biggest tool in your grief journey has been studying suicide grief and talking to people that are grieving after suicide? Absolutely. After Andrew died, I... I saw a post, I was um, counselling, I was volu a voluntary counsellor in a school at the time and for a charity called Place to Be in the UK. They offer a charity, they're a charity that offers counselling within high schools and schools in the UK. And I was volunteering with them, counselling children at school. And um, they said, oh, anybody want to run the London Marathon for, for, fun, for funding? And I said, oh, I'll do that in Andrew's name. So I, I just, you know, I'd never run an inch before in my life. Well, I probably had run an inch when I was younger, but as an adult, I hadn't run a marathon. And actually my sister ran the marathon a couple of years before and I saw her cross the line and I said, I'm never doing that. Why would you do that to your body? Why would you run 26.6 <laughs> miles out of choice? But, but, my, but, but I had a reason. I wanted, something in me wanted to tell everybody because suicide brings with it such a stigma, such a shame such a lot of shame I needed a I needed a way to tell everybody and what my research is showing is a lot of us when we lose someone to suicide we we have to go really convoluted ways to get to sharing our story because just to nip down the road and tell somebody is really difficult and it's it's difficult with any type of grief 
but when you're talking about suicide it, it brings in with it an extra layer that you know people always ask you know you say so and so my brother died took his own life well why did he take his own life you know you get all the questions and i think you get that naturally but you're so you're holding so much responsibility for that so much guilt so much of your own stuff it's really hard sometimes to explain because you don't even know yourself sometimes so to try and explain that so anyway you can't nip down the road and tell anybody so we almost have to go on this real journey of exploration it's almost as if our identity changes after grief especially after suicide loss there's just this kind of sense of who am i now like i said who am i if my brother couldn't be here anymore who am i and then you have to start piecing that back together again and i think my research my own therapy has been a part of that rebuilding my identity rebuilding my belief system basically <laughs> to sum it up that, yeah no 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 that that is that is so huge because now in in just the period of 6 years your identity shifted so many times right in that period of 6 years so your identity as the daughter of your mom, you know, that kind of shifted after your mom passed away. You're still her daughter, but yet she's not no longer on this you know, earthly plane. Then your identity as a wife shifted. Then your identity as the little sister of Andrew and having this, you know, big brother. So, so many shifts in just the identity within that six year period. And even more so than yeah. as you said, to add the layer of the how he died and having to then kind of how do you share that and, and so forth. Um, so in this piecing together, have you been able to then piece together who you are uh, without some of the labels that we carry sometimes in our life? Does that make sense what I'm saying? Like who, I sometimes wonder, like if we identify ourselves more with the labels and you being in, in psychology, I wonder if this is something you think of as well. If we identify more with the labels of our identity, what our identity is than with our trueness. Like who would I be were I not a mom? Who would I be were I not a wife? Who would I be, like who would I be without that title? Mm, totally, yeah. Yeah, and I think we are too, us, we, as human beings, we're doers, aren't we? I do the wife thing, I do the mum thing, I do the sister thing, I do the daughter thing, oh, instead of just that's me, such a... who I am, I'm a, I'm a human being. Yes, I like how you said it, we do, it's like a role, yeah, I, that, that what you're just saying, we're doing that, it's a period of time that we're doing that role. Um, that, that, that's a good point. Okay. Now what have been some of the biggest then tools in this journey then in the last, you know, I'm going to say six years truly, cause your grief journey has started, you know, with your mom's passing. Mm, yeah. So what have been some of these tools aside from then your research and, you know, suicide grief and what other things have you used in your grief journey? Yeah. The marathon was the turning point for me because I could, I could, stand next to somebody who had the same kind of grief as me and we didn't even necessarily have to speak but we, we understood without words and I think words are so like you say mum daughter they're all words aren't they words mm. sometimes there aren't enough words to convey how you're feeling and to just be present with somebody who understands that words don't quite convey how you're feeling that's enough and to be held in that space 
that for me that's been very powerful and I keep meeting people over and over again with my podcast and just by, by sharing my story just being around people there's just such a connection and for me that's huge because you you can recognize then that you're you are that being you're not doing you're a human being you're you're standing here now as you are in your true essence of being that person we're not doers you know we are human beings <laughs> and to be a human being yes. whether it's a psychologist a counselor you know I've I'm like, I was a counselor when my brother took his life I mean for me there was an absolute how can I <laughs> call myself a counselor and go on to a, a, a doctorate if I couldn't even save my brother you know there's a real sense of oh. that when we're professionals that we hit that hits our identity but again it's picking apart that that's not me that's not me that's not my identity that's kind of what I do and I love what I do I absolutely love what I do I take that is part of my identity is part of who I am but underneath it is a more complicated layer of who I am as a counseling psychologist who I am as a counseling psychologist which will be different to somebody else as a counseling psychologist and then a different counseling psychologist I'm a different mum than somebody else who's a different mum Absolutely. And you know, some, you know, something was bigger than you, your relationship with your brother and that dynamic, you were not the psychologist. You were the, you were the little daughter, you were the little uh, sister. You were not the psychologist in that dynamic. So that, you know what I mean? Just like you're not a psychologist in the role mm. that you play with your, with your children, you're the mom, you're, you know, so that is not mm. the role you play in those dynamics and relationships. So therefore there shouldn't be this added burden or responsibility in those relationships. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Makes sense. Totally. Yeah. Right. yeah. So, think... um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Now, tell, tell us then, how did you then navigate your grief journey as alongside helping your children navigate theirs as well? And what helped mm. them in their journey? Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing was telling my children that Andrew, you know, has suicided. And there was no avoiding it because they could see it. You know, they could see on my... I, I, there was no, for me there was no way of getting around it and certainly now everything I'm doing with the podcast and, and doing my research suicide is very much part of our, our discourse and I think that helps because it's not hidden away we still I think what's lovely there's lovely little things you can do isn't there there's lovely little things that help me like when we go out for a dinner as a family we still leave two chairs for mum and Andrew around the table even though they're oh. not there because I do believe we can still be connected on a different level. I don't know what that level is. I, I don't necessarily can, I can't give it a label. I can't see what that is, but I do feel very strongly connected to my brother and my mum. And that, you can honour that in those little ways, can't you? Like leaving the chairs for them or having a quick chat with them when you feel like it and feeling that they answer back or having the, the pictures where they need to be. And that's, that's for me, signs of healthy grief in inverted commas, you know, healthy. Don't like using that word because I don't know if there's such a thing but for me it feels healthy to do that and respectful actually respectful because if I wasn't grieving I wouldn't have loved them I, ha I have to grieve because I have loved them I do love them yeah that love doesn't end just because they're not 
physically here. So therefore, those emotions of missing them are still there. Um, and the grief is there accompanying that. Wow. Now, what other uh, learnings have you had in these? Uh, you've just recently launched your podcast, which have been some of the biggest learnings that you've had in talking to other uh, grievers that have um, lost their loved one by suicide? Yeah, my research has been the same. I've been talking to people through my research. and I'm writing up the conclusions and recommendations now for professionals for professional cancer psychologists and things to understand suicide grief a bit better because we don't understand it fully, I don't think, as professionals. And I think what I've learned from all of that and my podcast is the complexity of it, the enormity of it, of any type of grief, the, the shift in your identity, the responsibility we take, the guilt we have, the the whys, the what, the what's, the thoughts, the it all gets wrapped up and what I want to see happen is suicide grief become something, this is my recommendations from my research, I would like suicide grief to become separate to a suicide prevention narrative, which suicide prevention, because we haven't got necessarily discourse around suicide grief in the outside world, we always go in with suicide prevention. So if you try and get support after a suicide loss in the UK, you go through a whole um, alleyway of suicide prevention. So by the time you get there, for me, it feels a bit, well, I can't prevent it. I haven't prevented it. He's gone. I just want support. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to, yeah, we need to separate the support from suicide prevention. Of course, the suicide prevention needs to go ahead. We need to try and stop as many lives being lost to suicide as we possibly can. But our loss, needs to be separated out so that we can support those people directly without them going through the whole narrative of suicide prevention and the way to get in their support and we need to offer more for those who lose to suicide because what i've realized worked out concluded is it takes more than just talking it takes a lot of people go to running after suicide loss a lot of people go to writing writing a book talking at conferences uh, yoga, meeting for my marathon, um, doing research, <laughs> you know, it's as if we can't do it in silence. There's a, we have to do it quite out, some of us have to do it quite outwardly and we have to find ways of doing it. That's how we process our grief. So we need to be able to offer that to people, offer them tools to be able to do that. Safe tools to be able yes. to do that. As, as, you're, as you were talking about the suicide prevention and then with already the suicide grief, I was thinking, gosh, it, it must be very hard then for somebody, like you said, if that's the way that they get to get their help after their loved one has passed away, um, to go through the line of like finding out where their suicide prevention um, center is or whatever in their city um, and having to hear mm. all the ways that something mm. could have been stopped. It's like, it makes, I'm assuming it adds this mm. other layer of already, like you mentioned, this responsibility that already the grievers already hold that it's not really theirs, but it's there. You can't deny the emotions, right? The emotions are there, whether somebody wants to validate them or not, they're valid because that's the, that's what somebody's feeling. And then mm. to then um, 
having mm-hmm. to like, you know, I don't know. Does I, I'm just thinking that, that I, I had never thought of it. Like you just pointed out of how hard that is. So what an amazing, um, feat you're doing of creating this whole other or wanting, you know, to create this whole other, uh, arena of straight up just suicide grief, uh, support. Um, that is, that is just, so why yeah i'm really passionate about really passionate about yeah i mean the nhs website of i love the nhs don't get me wrong it's, it does a wonderful thing for our country in so many ways but the, the headline when you go for support says zero suicide and that's their mission so that's the first thing that hits me when i go for support through the nhs zero suicide and i go okay it, um it's happened to me <laughs> and it actually feels like it happens I've, I've spoken to a lot of people about this. It's not just, it isn't just me that feels this, but that it's a sense of, I didn't decide, I didn't have to end my life, but it feels like I'm living with the life sentence. It feels like I'm living with the after effects of it because we take so much of the responsibility. We take responsibility for telling their story because they're not here to tell it. We take responsibility for other people because we know that as soon as we say suicide, the mood will drop in the room. <laughs> we take responsibility for... The, the other the, the world because the world needs to hear these things and that's why we go on these campaigns and do what we do so we take responsibility for everything and that's such a heavy burden to to do alone and that's why support for me is absolutely crucial to feel to feel that with other people so you're not holding that huge responsibility alone mm. and a lot of that responsibility is quadrupled when you hear it was preventable of course suicide is preventable oh. in many in many instances but sometimes it's not <laughs> and we need to recognize there's a whole suicide is a it's got a whole continuum behind it it's not just one event there's always a lead up to it whether it takes hours minutes days seconds there's always a lead up to it and if we understand that a bit more and understand because i listened to a documentary recently and it said suicide is always present, prevent, preventable. And I was like, no, it's not because <laughs> we're here uh-huh. Uh-uh. and it's happened to us. Uh-huh. It's really happened to us. Yeah. Uh-huh. No, and it, and it, it just there. I get a bit passionate about it. <laughs> no, please do. Because as you're saying it, it's like, it's taking away that stigma also of just leaving then the, uh, okay. Not only then do the grievers have to already have to deal with the grief of their loved one being gone but then aside from that have to then feel this like guilt that the society is putting that they could have prevented it like that is just so much weight to carry that is not mm. fair that is not fair to the grieving family so absolutely and it's so different should be passionate so different me. i should be passionate <laughs> it's so different to my mother's to my mother's death, I know every grief is different and every grief is complicated. But for me, my, my mother's death was explainable. It was a disease that took her. And as sad as that was, and as horrible, she was way too young to die, way too young to die. As horrible as that is, it's very different to my brother made that decision, whatever word you want to use. I, I use that word really carefully because, again, decision isn't helpful necessarily, just like choice isn't helpful when we say someone chose to kill themselves it's like saying they chose to have a cup of tea or a coffee it's not that simple they didn't just choose that day to kill themselves you know they there was a whole trajectory towards that day that they went on 
And there's lots of stories of suicide attempt survivors explaining the relief they felt when they've made that decision because they're in so much pain. Suicide is taking away the pain they're in. You know, it's the only solution left sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, I I, I uh, volunteer in a grief support um, organization and somebody, when I was doing the training, uh, somebody that had been a participant in that grief support organization was saying how their child uh, who was a teen, um, died of suicide. And what she was saying as a mom was like, you know, we all make decisions every day of our lives. Every day we make decisions. Sometimes our decisions are poor ones. And that what she felt was that now, you know, her son was being remembered by the last decision that he made, you know, and that that was not that was not okay. You know, like there were other decisions that he Mm -hmm. made in his life that were good ones. You know, this last one was just Mm -hmm. the last one, you know, I mean, and like you said, and it could have been that that was like you were mentioning with Andrew, that was the only decision he could make at that moment, you know, for himself. And that was the right decision for him be in, you know, and what you're seeing, at least in his story, um, because that was Mm -hmm. his, that was his journey or whatever it was. But, um, but yeah, that is that is definitely yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of mm-hmm. there's a lot of stories of people who felt their loved one became the suicide victim rather than the the person they were. You know, they they, they were. You know, the the Andrew that he was. Mm-hmm. That's who I remember. I don't remember his final act. I don't remember him as the suicide victim apart from when I'm talking like this and I'm explaining it was part of his story but it was a it was only one part of his story and we're left carrying that weight of the one in the family being the suicide victim and unfortunately that leads a lot of family leads to a lot of family dynamics and a lot of problems within families because it's such a hard thing to come to terms with in your family because you're not expecting it you know you're not expecting it in a million years in your family many people even if you've had suicide attempts before, you know, I've spoke to people who've had partners and things that have attempted suicide before, but actually when it actually happens, it's such a huge, huge, such a huge shock. Cause you, you know, it's kind of one of those things, you know, death's a taboo subject, you know, it's, it's a taboo. We don't want to talk about oh, death, it is. Yeah, yeah. humans, you know, we don't want to admit we're going to die. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, suicide's really a taboo subject. You know, I didn't think it was going to happen in my family. Not for <laughs> I didn't think suicide was going to happen in my family. My family, you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't happen to my family. So when it does, you're like, whoa, hang on a minute, what does this say about my family? And we take on a lot of that responsibility then again of our family is the one who's had suicide in it. You know, what does that say about our families? It sucks, <laughs> really. Yeah, no, there's I can guarantee uh, there's suicide in my family. There's suicide in mine. My un, my uncle took you know took his life by suicide. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think that once we re- we take away the taboo, once one of talking about death, like you said, death is a taboo. We it, you know then grief is a taboo, and then on top of that, then then suicide's a taboo. If we start taking away those taboos and start talking more openly about it, we will find out that a lot of people are grieving. A lot of people have family you know members that have died by suicide you know things like that but because we've taken away the tab you know what i mean but it won't happen Mm -hmm. until we have more conversations about it um 
So yes. Now let's let's talk 100%. about Andrew. Yeah. The Andrew you remember and the relationship and some of the memories you have of him um, as you were growing up. You said he was the so out of the four siblings, you're the youngest. He was the oldest of the four of you. Mm, yeah, yeah. I was Babby Sis. He was the only person who ever called me Babby Sis. Nobody will ever call me that again. I was the Babby Sis. Yeah, he was awesome. He was, um, yeah, just. I remember him carrying me in from the car when I was little, you know what I mean? When I pretended to be asleep, he would be the one to carry me in. <laughs> He's, and he was always a go-getter. He was always way off to, to France. To... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know what you do when you're a kid, you know, you're like, oh, if I pretend to be asleep, somebody will carry me in. Oh, it's him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all and my mum and family were busy, all, you know, my mum, so, you know, my so family were busy. <laughs> <laughs> oh good it's not just me nope not just you <laughs> um yeah he went away to France when he was about 13 or 14 a really young age he went off and did you know a trip to, to France for six months stayed with the family he was always the go-getter he was the started his own business really young, DJing at the local, like the little clubs we had back then in the 90s, in the 80s, 90s. Um, he he was always, it was always the next idea, always the next idea. He was actually a medium as well, a spiritual medium. So he would um, lead groups on talking with the dead, you know? So he was a very diverse man, really. He had businesses, he owned a business where he, um, he sold his, uh, understanding about nutrition he was doing a nutrition degree because he believed that my mum's pick's disease came from nutrition so he went on a big thing after my mum died of learning about nutrition learning about what might have killed her what what the pick's disease where that might have came from and he then opened a cafe where he sold the best coffee in the world kind of thing because that's what Andrew did he always did the best of everything <laughs> and had a place upstairs where he could advise people on what to what to eat to build muscles, basically. Mm. So he was a giver. He gave. He was a giver. He liked helping people. He liked giving solutions to others. Oh my gosh! Yes, yes, and that's why he would be the one I'd go to if I wanted advice. You know, he would knew everything. You know, just the little things. I'm just gonna go for a run. What shall I eat? And that's what I miss most about him. Initially, I, I stopped having that person I could just ask who knew everything. So who do I ask now? Oh, I ask Google now. <laughs> Sadly. And that's what I miss most, I think. It, and just his, to be Andrew. his understanding with me about... <laughs> it used to be Andrew. And now it's Google. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bless his heart. Um just a really good guy yeah and the funeral was awesome everyone it was just packed the church was you know it was just recognition of of that in him the big heart he had um you know he did the mediumship for free you know he'd just go and do groups and you know i think he, he was massively affected by my mum's passing i, I know he was because he was the golden boy you know he was and he, I don't think he could make quite sense of that, let alone anything else that was going on. And there's lots of other parts of Andrew's story. Um, but I don't know all the answers. I don't know if they're all right or not, because I've made a lot of them. Have, 
I've just tried and I've just tried and found from all the evidence I've got, but I don't know if they're true or not. Some of his stories, you mean? Yeah, some of his stories of why why he had to do what he did. I think I, a lot of us, when we do suicide, go on a meaning making. I think with grief, we always go on meaning making, but with suicide, we really try and go through their last steps. What did they do just before? Where were they the day before? What were they listening to in their car? Um, what what did they, you know, what conversations did they have two days before? What led up to that moment when they decided they couldn't be here anymore? And there's a lot of meaning making for me in that with my brother trying to work out where he got to, where he got to, because it's such a shock. And again, you find evidence for some of what that might be, but you don't know it's absolutely 100% true because he's not here to ask. So again, it's not a story you complete, can completely tell, but you just piece it together the best way you can in your own head. Mm. Now, what are, the, what are some of the ways that uh, you honor him now? You mentioned keeping a, a seat at the table for him and your mom. What are some of the other ways that you honor him or that you, um, that you remember or that you maybe items of his that you kept? I remember when I talked to Lindsay, who you've already met, Lindsay Meaden, mm. Meaden, who you've uh, uh, met as well through this journey, she was mentioning about the remembrance bears that I had never heard. And she said it's very common in the UK that they make these little remembrance bears or something like that. Mem is, is that what they're called? Remembrance bears? The ones with the t-shirts and things like that? Yeah, I, I've was never heard of it until Lindsay. Any way that you, as a family... Yeah, wasn't that so sweet? I was like, I, I was like, so cute. I, perfect for her, you know, for kids <laughs> to have something to remember their uncle by. But um, what other, what ways have you found to um, to stay close to him? And especially, I'm so curious with him having mm. been a medium. You mentioned you, you talking. Do you talk to him as well? Mm. You write to him. Do you say you talk to him as well? Yeah, I I think. Well, first of all, he gave me his car before he passed away. So I kept his car um, until it literally died. And it was it was on my drive for probably, I'd say about two years, dead, not usable. I could not get rid of it. I could not sell it, give it away, take it to scrap because it was him. It was him all over because he gave it to me and it was his car. I could feel him in it, his energy in it. Um, so, so... <laughs> That was weird. The day I let that go, it was very odd because and it, a jacket, you know, I've actually I've got about 10 of his T-shirts that I still wear. <laughs> I still wear them now as my everyday T-shirts under jumpers and things. And I just they've got certain muscle muscle man things on them, you know, from his weightlifting days, you know, and I I just give a little smile when I just see those and think, yeah, you know, and I find those really just really comforting and. I, I do talk I do talk to him and I talk to mum I just talk to them I just literally talk to them as if they're here and I'll get a knowing I'll get a knowing back of what they're saying back because I knew them so well now whether that's my imagination or whether that's that's real I don't know and I don't care because it helps me <laughs> you are absolutely right that's exactly what I say to to people it doesn't matter whether others think that those are messages or the knowing that they're kind of communicating it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks as long as it brings comfort to the person that's grieving, that's all that matters. <laughs> I'm like, I'm the same way. I'm like, it brings me comfort yeah. to think that this was a message. Yeah. I'll just, I'll hold on to that. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and it's a way of keeping them alive, isn't it? It's a way of still having a relationship with them. It's, they call it continuing bonds, don't they, in psychology? I don't know if you've heard about that. You know, we have to continue our bonds because they were we were bonded to them when we were alive. We, we continue our bonds, even though they're physically not present. We can continue those bonds through whether it's talking and hearing back what you think they'd say, or you sense you hear them, or you see the signs. I mean, my mom, the, the week she passed, there was butterflies everywhere. And I said to her, you know, she, she died really over a seven day period. And during that period when she was very, very ill, I said to her, oh, mum, you know, when you're gone, send me some butterflies. And she couldn't speak at this stage. She was completely mute for the last six months of her life. So she, she, I don't know if she heard me. I don't know. But every time we get the strangest butterflies in the strangest times of years and they hibernate, they come out in December, which is, it's cold. And they sit on my dad's windowsill. And I say to dad, that's mum, I'm sorry. That's mum. You, you wouldn't have a butterfly sit on your windowsill for a whole month. Oh, and the day after she died. Oh my gosh. I went to a graduation for my, I was a, I, I trained as a Steiner teacher trainer as well. A teacher, sorry. And I went to my graduation and I was in the hall and a peacock butterfly flew in above my dad's head while he watched me in graduation. This is the day after she died. And a peacock butterfly was just flying around. And I'm sorry, don't care what anyone says. That was my mum saying, I'm here at your graduation, not in a physical sense, above my dad. And it was a peacock butterfly. We don't have peacock butterflies here. They're huge. I just couldn't believe it. I have to so, yeah, yeah, there you go. I'm going to have to look. And, I, haven't, I haven't heard of a peacock butterfly. I'm going to look it up right now as I'm talking to you. I'm going to look on my phone. I want to see what a peacock butterfly. I'm assuming it has a lot of the blues and the greens. Oh, I see peacock beautiful. butterfly. They're beautiful. I can see butterfly. Oh, I'm like beautiful. looking here. And they're huge. They're talking. massive. You it can't is, imagine how big uh, they are. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. The colors. So beautiful. I'm looking here at the colors. Oh, mm. uh, yeah, that that is that is so comforting. Like you said it now, what, what is a way in which you feel, Andrew, um, that you feel, Andrew, like so and your mom butterflies has been something. What's a symbol or something that you see that you can relate to with Andrew? Oh, gosh. Is there anything specific? I think it's everything. I think that's, I feel like it's everything with Andrew. It feels like I was so connected to Andrew that he's such a part of, of, of who I am. And so is my mum, of course, but I just sense a real deep, deep level of connection that it just takes that um, conversation for me and I hear back what you would have said. And that's my... And I don't, I don't actually ask for anything else because for me, that's, that's so deep and so enough for what I need. You know, I, I, I think. I learned so much from both of their deaths. I've learned so much. What have been, what has been something that you've learned the most of, about? Oh, uh, so I got a butterfly tattoo just after my mum, well, about two years after my mum died. Um, because I learned from my mum just to be your absolute true self because, you know, I watched her take her last breath. You know, I kissed her on her cheek when she took her last breath. And when you've got your breath coming in and out of you every single day, every single moment now, right now, you can never take that for granted. And I'm honoring that breath every time because that, that can only then now be the true expression of me because there's nothing else, nothing else really matters other than the fact that my breath is coming in and out and in and out. So I've learned to live my life 
you know, to the best of my ability, really. And that's it, to the best of my ability. And that will not always be right, you know, but it's the best, it's the best that I've got for me, with me right now. I always just think, well, that's the best I can do right now. That's the best I can do right now. And as long as it's the best I can do right now with what I've got, what tools I've got, then I just feel so lucky to be alive. And Andrew, I guess I've learned, oh gosh, <laughs> I've learned um, about money. I've learned that it doesn't matter how much money you've got, it it's, doesn't matter because my brother was in some debt which affected his suicide, I know it did. I think it did. Mm -hmm. um, so I've learned that money doesn't really matter because I, if I could rewind the clock and say to Andrew, you know, you're worth more than money. You know, you're worth more than any anything, any 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 money I could have. You know, I'd give anything to still have him here. So I've learned that from my brother, but I've also learned that we've all got a purpose, and this is my purpose right now is continuing this conversation, Andrew's conversation, really. That this this we can, we need to keep talking about it. We need to keep sharing our experiences like you're doing on the podcast to enable us to just keep taking those breaths moment by moment, being the best we can be with what we've got right now. And that's what I've got right now. I've got my all my losses in my life. And that makes me who I am. And I can't ignore them. I don't want to ignore them. Um, and I'm going to do with them whatever I can in my lifetime while I'm still breathing. <laughs> Yes, because by ignoring those losses, it's as if we would have ignored the fact that we had them in our life as well. So honoring the loss, knowing that we had it and it's part of who we, you know, who's, you know, who we are now, it's shaped us into who we are now, just like them being alive and them being part of our life shaped us who we are now. Mm -hmm. So did our, so did their death. So, um, totally. so it's, it's yeah. part of that journey. Um, Sue, you are just such a beautiful soul for sharing and not only your journey, but also a little bit about Andrew's life and your mom. What was your mom's name, by the way? What's your mom's name? Margaret. Very classical English name. Margaret. Margaret. My daughter's 19 and she's Margaret. got Margaret as her middle name. So that's nice. She lives on in my daughter. Oh, beautiful. Thank you for sharing Margaret and Andrew's uh, story. And how can people, and I'll make sure to add this in the um, show notes. If there, is there anything else you'd like to say to the listeners before we close off and just make sure to share your information of how they can get a hold of you? Yeah. Um, just want to say it will be okay. No matter where you are in your grief journey, no matter what your type of grief, it will change. You know, your life will change. The journey will go on. Look after yourself in it. Put yourself first in it as often as you can. Allow yourself to grieve when you need to grieve. Allow it to rise, like I've done in my research, and, and fall again on the other side. You know, it's not be afraid to grieve, because grief, someone said to me recently, grief is just the, the expression of love we can't give to that person anymore. So if we, if we feel upset, we feel the pain. That's our true expression of love. We can allow it to rise and fall. And I'm hoping to develop communities, lots of different layers of communities for suicide grief over the next year. 
to provide the kind of support people need after suicide loss. And you can find me on, on Instagram, Facebook, and my website, or called suicidegriefsupport.com. Well, that's the website. Instagram is suicide, full stop, grief, full stop, support. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But that will right. be in the show notes. I'll link those all to um, the And your podcast. Ah, my healing narratives of suicide podcast, which I absolutely love. It's very new, it's very early, but it really is a space for anyone to share their story, losing someone to suicide. So please get in touch if you want to share your story. Or if you want to listen to, uh, uh, you know, it's it's really a space where you can find somebody who resonates with you and listen to their story. It's a place of hope, really, that we'll all get through it. Because we are Mm. we are all still standing (laughs) and we're definitely we're definitely stronger together. That's my strap line. You know, we're stronger together. That is true. That is true. We are stronger together. Thank you so much once again, Sue. And I um, look forward to listening to your podcast as well as passing you down some of the guests that I've had that I believe will be able to share in your podcast as well, their journey. So I'll make sure to give you some of those names as well as the as their grief journeys thank you once again brilliant thank you so much thank you thank you for having me thank you again so much for choosing to listen today i hope that you can take away a few nuggets from today's episode that can bring you comfort in your times of grief if so it would mean so much to me if you would rate and comment on this episode and if you feel inspired in some way to share it with someone who may need to hear this please do so also if you or someone you know has a story of grief and gratitude that should be shared so that others can be inspired as well please reach out to me And thanks once again for tuning in to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. Have a beautiful day.